Equity is our labor of love. From humble beginnings in the back corner of our old office at 410 Townsend to the remote work world of today, for the past four years, Equity has been TechCrunch's flagship podcast for news on early stage rounds, seed stage startups, what's up with the biggest unicorns, and of course, the hottest IPOs. We've talked to dozens of VCs, recorded hundreds of episodes, and covered the biggest stories in the world of startups and venture capital, all so that you can stay informed. Now, we get asked all the time, how can people support the show? Well, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to Extra Crunch. If you do, you'll support Equity and you'll get access to things like our best reporting, the Extra Crunch live series, deep dives into sectors, investor surveys, and of course, my daily column, The Exchange. You can sign up at techcrunch.com slash subscribe and use the discount code equity. We appreciate you and your support of the show all these years. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined this week by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how are you? I survived the hurricane of 2020, which is one of many hurricanes this year, unfortunately, but we did survive the most recent one. We did. Branches fell all around the Northeast. Trees even kind of split in half. I was glad that none fell on my house, but uh, other than that, wind sucks and I'm glad we've moved on. Natasha, you are here as well. You are an early stage venture capital reporter for TC. How are you? Doing well. I'm in the Midwest and I'm happily surviving Cincinnati. It is delightful. Honestly, I'm really enjoying myself. George Clooney has a house here. They put chili on top of spaghetti with cheddar on top. and They put chili on top of spaghetti. It hits. It hits. So, so we all make fun of Cincinnati spaghetti chili thing, but it's really just kind of like a weird bolognese with beans. Um, but we have a lot to get through this week, so we're going to leave the spaghetti with beans behind and dive into the VC world. Um, guys, the biggest news this week, I feel, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it, it has still been this TikTok, Microsoft, Trump extortion saga. You know, So kind of where we are today, if I can summarize for everyone, is that um, Trump threatened to ban TikTok. Microsoft stepped in to possibly buy TikTok. There are other people that are sniffing around the deal. Trump then said that if there was a sale of TikTok, the Treasury, aka the US government, aka Trump, had to get a, a large piece of that because apparently he thinks the world's a mafia movie. Then Facebook dropped Reels, R-E-E-L-S, is that right, I think? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, which is a TikTok clone all over the world. And now we're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next. So I'm, I'm just curious, Natasha, you're the youngest person on the show. So sorry to put you on the spot, but have anyone in, in your life started to use reels yet? I think people are interested slash excited by reels. But the, the biggest thing I think people are happy with is that if you're a creator right now, it's much easier to be going to, to a different platform. You've already probably been diversifying your income. So I don't think TikTok's going to go anywhere, but just in case, I feel like all the TikTokers I follow as like guilty pleasures have like started makeup brands, have migrated millions to their YouTube channels. I don't think creators are going to have any problems because of how strong that economy has been. It's going to be really interesting because if we end up with a TikTok instead of Microsoft and then against YouTube, against the Facebook empire, somehow suddenly Microsoft is one of the chief players in, in global social, which would just be a strange moment because they've been getting out of consumer for so long. Anyways, uh, all this is to say that if the deal is announced and we get a price and there's big news, we are going to do an equity shot about it. So we're going to leave it for now. We've written about it, tweeted about it, talked about it. We can just let it go. But when stuff happens, we shall be here. So with that in mind, 
who this week read Square's earnings. Raise your hand or oh no, use your voice because we're on audio. Tosh, did you read it? No. Danny, did you read it? No, I'm not a Square. Ah, guys, 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 guys. Okay, so Square had a crazy quarter. People were expecting Square to kind of struggle because they do a lot of like in-person payments and people aren't going places and so they're not spending as much money. But instead, uh, revenue was up sharply year over year and it was driven largely by Cash App, which is a service that I've actually never used, but it's a bit like Venmo, but from Square is my impression. And it had like $1.2 billion in revenue in the quarter of which somehow like 800, 900 million came from Bitcoin which I haven't figured out yet, but that number blew me away. I wonder if Square is now the biggest Bitcoin consumer company in the world aside from like Coinbase. Those numbers are, are crazy. Danny, did you know that Square's Bitcoin business was that big? Uh, no, I did not. I mean, I, you know, it was very uh, surprising results because of course Square is, I think, best known for its POS systems yep. at restaurants, cafes, and of course after coronavirus has been completely wiped out, at least in the United States. And so to see, you know, 64% year over year in Q2 which covers, I think, uh, entirely within the coronavirus season, was actually a huge shock to me. And, and the fact that they, you know, this is a company where the margin matters a huge amount. You know, they make obviously much less revenue on the cash app, but the margin is so much better than traditional payments that they were able to make the numbers all kind of work out. I was just going to ask if you can run me through, because that was my first reaction. I was like, the cash app, I thought that they were the POS. So I'm sure other people will think the same thing. What does the cash app look like and feel like? So Square has a number of businesses, just as a general point. They do, um, they have a, a corporate lending program that they really wound down in Q2 because they have like your payments data so they can see how big of a company you are so they can loan you money off of that. They have the POS systems. They also have a way to collect payments online. They had the Cash App, which is, again, I use Venmo occasionally, but Cash App is like a way to send money between people. And so they make money on transaction volume there. They also have a cash card so you can bring that money into the real world. And also you can buy Bitcoin on uh, through Cash App or on Square's platform in some capacity. And I thought that was small, but it turns out I was wrong. And it's also important to point out that they used to own Caviar, which they sold off to DoorDash, I believe, yes. last year. So they have gotten out of some businesses. But to me, the, the magic here, and we've talked a lot about this in fintech in general, is everyone's a neobank, right? Once you have a customer, once you own a consumer, you want to offer them the entire suite of banking products. So I think in a week or two, we'll, we'll have Wealthfront CEO Andy Ratcliffe on Extra Crunch Live with a live interview to talk about how Wealthfront is getting into banking. Square obviously has gone into transactions and payments like Venmo, but now it has a debit card. It's also getting into other banking services. You know, again, once you've captured this consumer, the marketing costs go away and you can just offer them a lot of these higher margin financial products. And, and the, the gist of this, even if you take the Bitcoin revenue out of, of Cash App, the revenue was up. 140% year over year to 325 million according to the earnings. So what we're seeing here, and the reason why I bring all this stuff up, sorry to kind of bury the, the lead here, is that we're seeing uh, e-commerce and payments just do fantastically well during this coronavirus period, which I think is a surprise. I don't think if you asked us back in March or early April, this is what we would have expected to see. And so just thinking about the, the, the world that startups and VCs operate in, we've seen strong results from Square. I think Etsy did quite well. Shopify blew it out of the ground. Well, and, uh, and similar news in payments, uh, Stripe actually hired a new chief revenue officer today. Uh, I'm sorry, yesterday, Mike Clayville, who used to run sales for AWS. So I think again and again, we're seeing huge, huge strides because we're moving so much onto e-commerce, into online uh, digital services. Again, we're seeing huge amounts of money flow here. And so you're getting high quality talent like a Clayville, like you're seeing with Square's earnings. And I think we're going to see more to come. We are going to see more to come. So Shopify, if you haven't read Shopify's earnings, I know I always say this and it's boring every quarter, but like, go read them. It's really fascinating to see how fast that company is growing. And those strong results came out before big commerce, 
began to trade. That company's share price skyrocketed off its $24 per share IPO price. It's doing incredibly well. What's fun for the, for the equity people out there, y'all listening, is that this is trickling down a little bit to the, the startup world. So if you look at Q2, there were, I think it was 28 fintech rounds of 100 million or more, which was an all-time record. The, the preceding high was 26. We're also seeing early stage kind of weakness in fintech. We're seeing the round count go down. And so like you can kind of think about fintech today as really surging in the late stage, struggling a little bit at the early stage. And I, I know we got whiff of a firm potentially going public. They declined to comment slash they might do something completely different. But yeah, to me, that was another example of, of how fintech is looking at the moment. I was really excited to see that company. Um, any news about that company is next up. Do we, do we know if Max said anything uh, on Extra Crunch Live on Thursday? I think it's happening as we speak. So as we're recording, so we, we don't yeah. have, the, we, we, the IPA was just announced, but who knows? <laughs> that, that would so ruin the show. Like if we tried to put this out tomorrow, like Friday Actually, morning. if I, if, look, as a CEO, here's what I would do. As soon as I know that the SEC is going to accept my S1, I, I would literally like submit the S1, the second going on stage and be like, I just entered a quiet period. Like this interview is just not going to happen. <laughs> just, just sit there. What you can do is you can reach into your backpack, which you brought on stage with you and grab a roll of duct tape and just duct tape your own mouth shut. And then wait to be dragged off the stage bodily. That would be hilarious. Do please, if you, when Disrupt is back in person next year, someone should do that. That'd be hilarious. Uh, you have my permission. Anyways, the, the gist of this is fintech and e-commerce is just is crushing it right now. Super interesting, interesting time in the public, late stage and startup world. So uh, lots of good data there. But we are going to pivot and talk about an early stage fund that has a mechanism that I've never heard of before. So Natasha, what's going on? Gumroad founder Sahil Lavengia, he launched a new seed fund, which isn't exciting as itself because founders always invest in startups, but he is choosing to stay a founder and also enter the VC game through, an, through a new funding structure piloted by AngelList. It was launched in February, but I feel like people are paying attention more now. Um, it's a rolling fund, which means that through an SEC accreditation, someone who wants to create a rolling fund can start to publicly solicit like, and tell people literally on Twitter, Zoom, Notion, which is how Sahil did it. I'm raising a fund. Do you want to give a check on a quarterly basis? You have to commit for a minimum of four quarters. And then after that, you re-up each quarter. The, the biggest sell of it, I think, personally, are one, you have to do it behind closed doors. So underrepresented people can be loud and, and, and get amplified that way. And then secondly, you can start investing, you know, within your first couple months, two months ago, Sahil didn't want to be a VC, he, he said to me, and I had to include it. But, you know, it's, it's true. I mean, obviously, his network played a huge role in him being able to close five million, but it does it did speed up a lot of that process. So I heard about Sahil, uh, Sahil, sorry, because of Gumroad. And he did a blog post a year ago, kind of like talking about how he was not giving up and he bought the shares back. How did that story end up resulting in this fund, I suppose? Yeah, I, I think he's been really transparent. Is it in the blog title is something like my failure to build a billion dollar business. And they he, he wants to bring that same level of transparency to a seed fund. It's what gave him that huge network. It's what made Naval, who is the founder of Angelus, reach out to him in the first place is this guy's transparency around failure. So he, he even told me this morning that he's already wired two checks and he, he wants to kind of like open up the, fun, the, the investing process, which as a reporter, I'm amped to see. Danny, I'm sure you have thoughts about it, though. I, I just think it's amazing to see how flexible the SEC has become. I mean, you know, I've been ranting and raving about Form Ds, which no one seems to care about. I care, I care about. Um, but if you go all the way back to, to <laughs> the Jobs Act in 2012... I mean, this is sort of the end result, right? Like general solicitation is totally fine. Just tweet out like whatever. 
people are signing up on their Bitcoin accounts through, I guess, Square Cash and uh, moving their money into VC funds. Like this, this is sort of the future of finance, right? Is, 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 is this is dem what democratization was all about? I think the question we'll be interested in long term is, you know, what do the returns look like here? Yeah. Um, do people get fleeced? You know, we already talked about this in the context of Robinhood and options trading and some of the challenges there. You know, people are getting into more and more exotic instruments. And, you know, I think it's great that, you know, Sahil has been able to build out this fund. I think it's amazing. I, I think there's a, a variety of solo capitalists similar to this who have raised a couple million dollar funds. It's really nice for founders to have these sorts of folks backing them. But from a, a process perspective, I mean, I think it shocks a lot of VCs. It's like none of the rules that they learn from lawyers apply anymore. Yeah. So, Danny, when you say exotic instruments, I presume you don't mean the glockenspiel and the bass clarinet. What do you mean for people out there who don't know what an exotic instrument is in this context? <laughs> By the way, glockenspiel is actually not that exotic, but it just sounds cool. Sorry, go for it, Danny. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's a couple of these different models, right? So some of these are like series LLCs. There's, there's some more, I wouldn't say they're necessarily novel. I mean, it's similar to SPACs, right? SPACs are, quote unquote, some people have described them as exotic instruments. Well, SPACs have been around for decades. The difference is, is I think people are getting much more creative of using off-the-shelf techniques and tools. And, and there's just a change in the lawyer culture where lawyers are just much more willing to say, yeah, go for it. The SEC doesn't seem to really care about general solicitation anymore. Like, don't worry about it. It's similar to Form Ds. You're supposed to file. And in many cases, it's highly recommended you file. But these days, a lawyer will say, you know, but no one else files and the SEC doesn't seem to really care. Like, don't worry about it. Like, nothing hopefully will go wrong. And um, I think that's okay. Like, ultimately, if you're going to get innovation in financial services, it starts in many ways with having the regulators be laxer or for lawyers to sort of approve you and say, it's okay to kind of try and do this. I talked to the current CEO of Angelus this morning, Avlock, and I asked what needs to change before rolling funds or every fund. And he was like, honestly, it's it's already happening. Of course, he would say that. But like, let's believe him. He says there's hundreds and they promise to give us the numbers. So we will have them when when they um, are willing to share it with us. But I definitely see it happening more. Even if it's just Twitter buzz, I'm seeing pitches come in. I think it makes a lot of sense with the smaller fund sizes. It'll be much more significant if we start to see the 30 to $50 million debut funds at this scale. You know what this reminds me of, actually, is like, remember, I feel like 10 years ago, like individual people kept popping up in the world of tech and keep, kept doing cool new things. He now, I think, fits that mold because like he's like, he, he built a company, it didn't work out so well, wrote a blog post, kept it going. Now it's growing well, pushing the boundary here trying to diversify the ecosystem. It's a one-person dynamo, you know? And he's 26 I years old. He's how old? Which is freaking crazy, 26. Okay, I hate him now. Okay, <laughs> we can move on. All right, so um, next up is a company called Styx, which is offering DGC pregnancy and ovulation tests, which just raised $1.3 in seed funding. There is an enormous list of investors. Here are a few. If you don't get listed, sorry. But BDMI, Rogue Women's Fund, Vamos Ventures, Founders Factory New York, uh, Angels as well, uh, Heidi Zack from Third Love, Lawrence Franklin from Coach, Steve Gutentag, I think that's how you pronounce that, and uh, Dimitri Karagas from 30 Madison. So a lot of folks taking part in this relatively small round, but certainly an interesting one. Guys, we talked about Roe last week, which is kind of like DTC meds for men uh, to a large degree. This is a woman-focused DTC model bringing tests that are of a relatively personal nature shipped to you for a reasonable cost. And I think this kicks ass. What do we think? I liked it. I thought the first critique was that it might only be needed for a really short frame of time. So I DM'd the founder and the founder, Jamie Norwood, just basically said that over 50% of their customers are actually not trying to get pregnant, but use the test for peace of mind 
like irregular periods and IUDs and then ovulation sure. to understand cycles. And as someone who has downloaded a period tracking app and then deleted it because people freaking steal and sell data, I, um, I, I, I get the market need for people that just want to be on top of their shit. Like, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely increased the life cycle and my belief in the company after hearing that explanation. Yeah, for sure. Also, people often have more than one child or they take a long time to get pregnant. So I wonder if, if, if the idea that the kind of consumer lifetime value or CLTV is limited is predicated on people who don't realize that getting pregnant isn't as easy as you may have thought it was and that it may take a while. And therefore, the product, you could sell lots of units to people. Speaking of which, tests for pregnancy are $13 through sticks and uh, ovulation tests, which includes seven, are 17, which strike me as roughly competitive with what I'm familiar with in the market. I don't, I don't have exact prices in my head, but that feels roughly uh, in keeping. So I'm curious about the margins for sure and how this kind of works out. How much does it cost to acquire customers? Also very curious, but it's, uh, it's a cool new round. It's only 1.3 million, so it's pretty small, but we wanted to bring them up. It's cool to see women building cool stuff. I think, I think what's interesting here is I, I think there's going to be more and more of a pipeline of startups where, you know, this one is focused on testing. And then once you're pregnant, there are companies that kind of kick in startups that are focusing on, on women in the, in the pregnancy phase. And then post-pregnancy, you know, obviously there's a bunch of startups that are focusing on new, you know, infants, new children, et cetera. To me, like there's an opportunity to actually share that CAC in the sense that you don't necessarily have to do it all the above. You can actually hand these customers off to the next stage in the pipeline after you. You know, not to say that there's going to be a uh, cooperation, but there is a way to sort of share those CAC costs. Because once you have someone coming in your funnel, if you can get paid to send them off to somewhere else, um, you can make up a lot of that CAC cost at the end of the, the trial or whenever they're in your kind of wheelhouse. It'd be really cool to build a VC fund that just focused on like, like DTC and technology products for parents and children throughout the life cycle of having kids, like pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, birth. And then like infancy, toddlerhood, whatever that's called, childhood. I don't know. I'm not good at this. And up through the age stack, effectively. I, I, you you mm -hmm, could have, mm -hmm. if you had it all vertically integrated, Danny, you could save a lot of money on CAC. Get a baby pre-birth and then just keep it till they're 18. And money, this is my plan. This is why I'm not a VC. Okay, moving on. Cloud computing. <laughs> hey, there's no good segue Cloud. between baby. <laughs> Cloud no computing. No, talking about, I'll, I'll do a oh, better I'm, segue than that. Talking about really small children. We're going to talk about the smallest form of computing. Quantum computing, not cloud computing, although clouds also have, you know, small droplets, very small. So the next company we want to talk about is, is, is Rigetti Computing, founded by, I believe, Chad Rigetti. So it's named after him. But they raised a 75, uh, sorry, 79 million Series C round led by Bessemer Venture Partners and a bunch of their former investors. And they're in the quantum computing space. So they're competing with a lot of big name folks, IBM, D-Wave, and uh, uh, others who um, are trying to commercialize a lot of te technology around quantum computing. So Danny, why do we care about quantum computing and what tasks might it unlock that kind of traditional computing systems are not good at? Well, I was part of a, um, a background call from the National Science Foundation earlier today, which was supposed to answer those questions to prep us, and they didn't really answer it all that well. What I will say is, is there are a variety of different applications, one of which is breaking and in, in, in strengthening encryption, depending on yes. which side of the table you are on that. There are certain applications where quantum computing, because of the way qubits work, might be much more effective around AI and stuff like that. It's sort of open-ended, right? This is a whole new computer architecture. It does not in any way relate to what you think of as like an Intel chip. It's not built around sys processing or risk processing. It's a totally different model. But the idea here is that there are certain applications where this will work really, really well. So much in the way that NVIDIA has really owned the AI ML kind of pipeline, mm -hmm. the belief here is that quantum, as it kind of commercializes and gets more powerful, will solve other problems uniquely. And in a cloud-based environment, you can always you know, put that application workflow over there. 
And one of the things that, that stood about this round and one of the reasons why I wanted to have it in here is that people are talking about kind of commercialization and actually in market products and so not just doing R and D. And so, um, Tomer, uh, I forget his last name, Tomer, uh, Diari from Bessemer. Uh, there's a quote in Frederick's piece about this round. He said, quantum tech has the potential to unlock significant advancements in biology, chemistry, logistics, and material science, science. And we believe that Rigetti provides the most immediate and clear path to a production grade system in the market. That's what caught my eye. Maybe we're close to this not being hype, not just potential, not just promise, but actually in market applications that we can actually use, see the benefits from and feel the impacts of. Because it's been a while since a new tech has really dropped that's shaken things up. We've been applying tech to different places, but I love the idea of there being a new not weapon per se, but like tool in the market. It sounds it's very exciting to me. So I'm hopefully we're looking forward to like a like a magic leap of new technology. Yeah, hopefully yeah. it was a little bit better than Magic Leap itself. Yeah, Magic Leap. Whoops on that one. Anyways, <laughs> Rigetti is is really cool. I, I I don't mean to pull for companies, but I'm kind of pulling for them to pull this off because it sounds really neat. Now, we're gonna talk about someone we don't talk about much on the show, which is Parker Conrad. Natasha, why is he back on equity? So Parker Conrad, if you recognize his name, it's because he was the co-founder or is the co-founder of Zenefits. And Zenefits was accused of skirting regulations. He had to mm -hmm. pay $11 million in fines in several states. Naturally, because he is a white male in tech, he has a second chance at Rippling. Rippling just raised $145 million and was valued at a $1.35 billion valuation which is an insane second act. But Rippling is kind of similar to Zenefits in that it's also employee management technology and software. Kind of like where my comprehension of Rippling starts and stops, though. So the reason why this caught my eye is the, the valuation increase, because last April, April, April 2019, TechCrunch wrote that Rippling raises $45 million at a $270 million valuation to be the business application identity layer. To go from 270 to over 1.3 in, in you know roughly 12, 14 months is an insane amount of value creation. And Danny, it makes me wonder if the valuation makes sense or is more optimism than pragmatism. I mean, I, I, we don't know the revenues, right? So we don't actually know uh, the underlying uh, mechanics here. What I will say is, um, you know, HR has been really, really popular. I mean, the identity layer is huge. And as you've seen over the last couple of months with, with coronavirus and sort of the, the second order effects, um, as you're hiring more remote workers, as you're hiring teams in multiple locations, the software layer here gets really, really important really fast, right? You're dealing with payroll in multiple states, whereas a lot of startups and a lot of companies may have only had payroll in one state before. You're having to deal with this identity layer problem, which tends to uh, fall under the SSO, the single sign-on bucket, but it seems like Rippling does a little bit of both. And then there's this whole category of onboarding, which... I've always been confused by because when we talk, I mean, we're talking about pregnancy and we're like, oh, that's a limited time. I'm like, employee onboarding happens once. I mean, you don't get onboarded weekly. And if you do, uh, you probably should tell someone in HR to stop doing that to you. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the reality is, is they're sort of touching on a lot of different products at the same time, combining it under one roof, and it's a single sale. And I think for a lot of, you know, this in some ways, I don't want to call it a roll up because it, it's not like a PE roll up where they're rolling up different companies into one, but it is... A, a full suite solution sale in a world in which like in HR, everything's a point solution. So you have like, instead of buying 40 different SaaS companies, Rippling says, just buy us, we cover most of what you need in one package. And now you only have one relationship instead of dozens. So I, I think that that's where a lot of the magic is coming from. Yeah, to point out why that's important. Uh, in July, I covered a, a round for a company called Sora, S-O-R-A. And they raised 5.3 million to do kind of like HR automation tech to kind of link together your disparate HR pieces of technology to make things like mm -hmm. onboarding much better. 
Ripley and he's trying to say, here's one bucket of it. Cool. Now, to be clear, you can't mix and match your own favorite bits. You have to get all the rippling stuff. So it's kind of a trade-off, but interesting to see. And in the same domain, a former Zenefets employee founded a company called Agent Sync that raised some money that I covered this week. And they are working on some of the grittier bits of the of the of the issues that Zenefits ran into back in the day with, you know, licensing and, and who's a, a licensed insurance agent and so forth. And so it just goes to show how much work there is still to do for tech companies, large and small to work on the software backend of kind of the world that we live in. And so it's very exciting to see. And it's fun to see Rippling and Agent Sync raise in the same week. Because I think that Parker was involved with the Agent Sync round, if I recall correctly. So technology is a very, very small world. I think we can leave that one there. Let's talk about static. All right. So we're going to completely switch from HR payroll processing software to EV charging stations in India. So um, static is a YC company. Uh, a couple months into uh, into the business, and what they're focused on is is EVs, so electric vehicles. India has had a huge issue with pollution for many years. Many of the most polluted cities in the world are in India, including New Delhi, Bombay, and elsewhere. The government has put huge amounts of money and resources into building out EV as a technology. Uh, the challenge is is twofold. One is there's still not a huge market for cars, and so what we've seen over the last couple of years is that there's a, a huge vehicle market in India for two-wheeled and three-wheeled vehicles, which is kind of transforming the world in a way that's different from, say, the United States. And second is there's no charging infrastructure. And so what was interesting about Static uh, and the founders here is that they're trying to build out fully bootstrapped an EV charging network. And they're doing that with a multi-revenue model. So they're, they're actually working with the landlords to basically get them to pay for the installation costs of the EV equipment. Um, that charging equipment, according to the founder, is a third of uh, traditional prices in the United States. So it's actually much cheaper than uh, equivalent equipment in the United States. And then they also have advertising on this. So they have an advertising revenue component. They have a subscription fee because you have to be part of the static network in order to uh, charge. And then there's a per session energy charging fee, which is split between the landlord and the company. And so I just thought it was interesting because we've seen companies over the years like Better Place in Israel which raised a billion bucks and went kaput. We've seen Tesla try to do this with its own capital, with its supercharging network. It's hard because there's this chicken and egg. And in Tesla's case, they want to be both the chicken and the egg. And I think Static might be one of the few companies that is able to put all the pieces parts together and say, hey, we can actually, we can be the chicken first. It doesn't have to cost us a lot of money on cash flow. Yeah, so this rules. And when I read this, I was very, very excited by it. So I'm glad we picked it up. But like, isn't this the moment or the place where SoftBank should show up with an enormous check to jumpstart this? Like, isn't this what the Vision Fund was for, like, bring the future closer, right? Like, why why are they bootstrapping this? Why don't they have a $200 million check from Masa just to go out there and <laughs> kick butt and deploy a bajillion of these things and help electrify, you know, India's cars? Well, I mean, we talk a little bit about uh, Reliance Geo and the um, scale of investment from Reliance, but uh, Reliance's original businesses are in petrochemicals, right? So the actual largest telco conglomerate with uh, Mukesh Ambani is in the oil industry in many ways, right? Like, and, and they also own all the shops and they also own a lot of the dealerships. You know, they're in a lot of different industries. And so actually, in some ways, they're the insurgent incumbent. You know, if you're in the EV charging space, you're actually going up against a lot of these profitable businesses. And it's not as clear to me that SoftBank or anyone could actually fund this in the same way. So I, I think actually doing it in a bootstrap way, carefully growing the network out is a smarter strategy than trying to go big or go home early on. Well, you don't have to go spend all the money right away. You could just raise a bunch of the money and then kind of disperse it more slowly. But that's no fun, Alex. That's no fun. Yeah, I guess not. You got to burn it, man. One note I'll add is that I'm happy to see that this is in YC's fold. The creativity coming out of YC's international companies has 
not been great sometimes. It's been like an X of taking an American startup and then making it tailored to an international audience. And this is just like real innovation. I'm sure there's been really great innovation happening in the international startups. But YC's bet a lot in India. And this is one of the better ones I've seen come out of it. They put a partner there for a couple months. They travel there for interviews. I feel like this is more of a higher caliber than the other ones I've been seeing. Yeah, and India has been pretty active lately. I mean, we're not going to touch on this for more than like five seconds, but Baiju acquired White Hat Jr. in India for $300 million. The company was doing like $150 million in annual revenue. And that was a cash deal. So we're seeing acquisitions. The, the Indian startup scene feels to be more attractive and uh, active than ever, I think is how I'd summarize that. So lots to look at there. And, and, and to summarize that real quick, Baiju's, to get you a sense of it, because I don't think we've ever, have we ever talked about the company on, on it's Equity? It's been a couple of years of the show, but probably not. You know, in, in June, so just two months ago, it actually raised a $10.5 billion valuation, and it, it's the market leader in ed tech um, in India. So, yeah. you know, we always joke about ed tech. Oh, God, you know, it's so hard to make any money. You know, in the last couple of months, we talked about Duolingo, I think it was, what, two, two and a half billion. Yep. We've talked about Hotmart buying Teachable, and, and Baiju's is a great example of this. Overseas, there's a massive online ed tech market, and ironically, the U.S. has never figured that out. It took huh. a pandemic for us to figure out that, like, maybe you we don't have to go to school. We yeah. haven't figured it out. Well, <laughs> we're, I don't think we figured we're anything out right now. But, but give it one more year, and I think you know whether it's Lambda School, Masterclass, a bunch of other stuff. Like, there's a lot of ways to go about building on online education. I think a lot of the rest of the world's already figured this out, and the U.S. is playing catch up. This summarizes how I feel about a lot of the world we live in now. Like, e-commerce, hot. Like ed tech, hot. India blowing up. Tons of money still going on in the U.S. Fintech still doing very well. It just, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a domestic recession, and yet our worlds that we cover seem to be just so active. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that with ed tech, it's been hard to feel like it's not just noise, but I think internationally, like if I can move international, this would be the time to cover ed tech, as it always has been. The U.S.-based investors, for example, Owl Ventures, they invested in Baiju, also invested in White Hat Jr., that acquisition just went through. I was like, fire, fire emoji, fire emoji. <laughs> but it's, I, I, I want to write a million stories about ad tech. One of them is just like, are the US-based businesses all just features or are they going to be full suite solutions that actually get adopted by our education system? I don't think so, unfortunately, because we have a very fragmented society. I think we have a hugely fragmented society, but we also just don't have consumers who are willing to goddamn pay. I mean, at a certain point, yeah. one of the magics to, say, the podcast market in China, Korea, elsewhere is there's huge amounts of money that people pay for this stuff. Like, you know, it's not hard to actually um, create a 10-episode podcast and people will pay $100 to buy it, right? Because it, it, in, in much the opposite way of the U.S., in many of these countries, you actually have a sense of, like, if you're not paying for it, you're the loser, right? You're getting the worst content if it's free. Whereas in the U.S., we tend to have this notion of, like, you know, we want to have the best stuff free as many people can read it. And so like, I, I think when you get into ed tech, it's a great example. Like, People want to professionally develop. Economies are growing fast. People want to move up in their careers. And you know, any tool in the toolbox that might get them there, they're willing to pay for. It's an investment in themselves, their human capital, their, their futures. Uh, the same mentality just doesn't exist in the US. The question is, is does that change in the next decade? And I think it, would, I think it does. I think it does too. As the world becomes more competitive, I think we're going to have more people in the US investing in add-on educational components and be showing a greater willingness to buy for stuff. I think the idea has been, well, I pay my taxes, so it should be free. Uh, maybe, but maybe you need to be more competitive than that. My question that I went into this week with was talking about all this emotional toll on parents. Is it actually unlocking their wallets? And how does that look? And that brings us to like kind of like the last topic we'll talk about today on equity, 
learning pods is kind of the new craze in wealthier families group chats right now. It's um, basically this idea of bringing your child, some similarly aged children within a private pod, hiring a private teacher and then adding that on to either your virtual school experience. That, so like your kids go to school a normal day and then do extra help in your backyard or do, making that your homeschooling. So doing like a private homeschooling situation. It's like also becoming controversial because of the inequity it makes like a like i think 80 85 to 90 percent of kids in the u.s go to public school so this is definitely for a really small percent of people that can afford it but edtech startups are pivoting the the edtech startups that were helping with teacher hiring are now instead of helping those teachers get hired at schools are helping those teachers get hired by people in tech which i think is it's an interesting trend to follow and it's it's one way the emotional toll danny to your point is like turning out in this phase a year from now, I'm expecting it to be a little bit more mature. I'm super excited by this, by this entire concept of pods, but it does bum me out a little bit that it's going to be another example of people who have money having access to this awesome thing and kids who don't have wealthy parents having very little. Um, but if I had money and I had children, I would absolutely do it. Danny. Well, I think, I think there's an opportunity here where there's, I'm going to call it the Peloton of education. Oh my God. Uh, so, so, you know, you have Let's public schools, it. which are, you have <laughs> public schools that are funded through property taxes so nominally free for you to attend. And then you have private schools, which are extremely expensive. So, you know, K through 12 private schools can go forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year. I think the brilliance here is that pods could be at a medium price point, but the typical family, if you have a kid or two for one teacher, it might only be, you know, five, 10,000. I mean, it depends on how many students and your kind of local market for teachers, but you know, in, in, in expensive school districts, it's not uncommon for a teacher, probably full full freight to be $150,000 a year. But in cheaper districts, it might be $50,000, $60,000 full freight a year. And um, if you have 12 kids there, it's 5K a kid. That's a car payment for $300 a month car or $400 a month car. So I, I don't think it's insane. In other words, like I think now you're seeing like this middle road where it's like, it, it's not free or 50,000. It could be like five to 10,000. And does that open the market up much in the way that Peloton was sort of between a personalized trainer at, you know, $100 a sessions or like, walking in a circle in your house and let's not i mean you sure, can also go Eddie. outside to be clear like you don't have to stay indoors i ran outside today so i asked owl ventures like why are you betting on this this doesn't seem like it's going to stay past the pandemic and like about two minutes ago we just mentioned that they are the ones that invested in both baiju and white hat jr so let's believe in them and they said that they're kind of also betting on it partnering with schools foundations and charter schools to make pods work and make it less private and that to me is more exciting. So when and if that goes through, then it's actually a trend to care about. My take right now is that it's like a lot more noise than staying power. Um, but, you know, maybe it'll be the Peloton of schooling, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I don't the, know yet. You heard flip, it here first. You heard it here. You heard it live. Yeah. But but if, when it's wrong, it's Danny's fault. Um, the, <laughs> but he's, I don't actually think you're wrong, Danny. Be totally right. I, I think you're dead on. I think a lot of parents are re- thinking how their children are educated, how they're cared for, the crossover between care and education for younger students, especially, mostly it's, it's just impacting daycare. moms, like disproportionately impacting moms that have yep. are working mothers. And there's, I mean, there's any New York Times or Atlantic article will show up a million examples of how this is hurting working moms. So yeah, yeah. I don't want to pass judgment on them either. And, and so if there is a way to not pay 50K a year and to step a 10 per child, I think that would actually be relatively popular. Now, again, yes, we understand it's for privileged people and so forth, but I, I think that's a very attractive proposition. Parents want to have their kids around, they want to be well-educated, and they don't have 50K a year post-tax per child. By the way, closing thought, 
Why the hell does it cost that much to go to fourth grade? Where's that money go? Do they just go outside and throw it into the wind magically? I don't know. All right. Anyways, but the show's gone on way too long. This is not even in the script. We've just been talking about this. Um, Danny, Natasha, a pleasure as always. We are back Monday morning. This is Equity and you rock. Bye.